the show you need to get what you desire by avoiding the mistakes made by others before you. Learn the stories and journeys of what success looks like to find the freedom you deserve while thriving with your best life. And now I present to you the one, the only Rapid Results with Andrew Wise. Welcome back to another episode of Rapid Results with Andrew Weiss. We have an amazing, incredible guest with us today, hand-selected by me, the wonderful John Hitler. And I met John originally through a LinkedIn Book of Experts call. I'm like, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's kind. He's generous. I got to bring him on my show. And a little bit about John. John specializes in creating seemingly impossible outcomes whether transforming a struggling team to become the top performer, engaging an audience with his playful, interactive, life-changing style. His belief is simple. We are each endowed with one genius talent different than any other person on the planet. John uses his genius to create seemingly impossible outcomes and in doing so helps people win big. He is the author of three books, The Motivation Trap, One in a Billion, and Little Book of Big Scales. So John, welcome to the show. Tell us what is the biggest, most badass uh, professional accomplishment you're most proud of? Well, I'm actually going to go with a personal one. For eight years, I successfully negotiated with the Russian mob and did not pay them a dime, not one penny. Um, I was running a <laughs> I have three Russian kids, and so we started a foundation to support kids getting out of the orphanages because they just dumped them on the streets. And the problem was the mob came in and said, we're going to help you, which means we're going to take whatever we want from the funds you're raising and for ourselves uh, for protection or whatever they claimed they were doing. And I, I had to negotiate with them, and I did successfully for, for eight years, and people said, didn't they have guns and stuff? Yeah, they did. They did. But I knew they wouldn't kill me because they don't get any money if they kill me. So, but they would start with that. They, they'd start by taking their guns out and we meet in a park, like on a, on a picnic bench and they kind of slam them on the table. Like, okay, we're here, whatever. Uh, and it was, it was actually kind of fun as long as you didn't get caught up too much in, oh, those guns are probably loaded and I could be dead because you're in a, you're in a public place. They weren't going to hurt me or kill me there. Now, if they really didn't like me, maybe they would have. But uh, yeah, my job was if you gave me a donation for the foundation, let's say you donated $100, I couldn't go to you and say, Andrew, thanks so much for the $100 donation. Just to be clear, though, $25 cents or $25 of it has to go to the mob because that's, that's what they extract out of me to do business. No, my promise was if you give me the money, 100% of it goes to the kids. And so I had to deal with the mob and that was my rule. They got no money. So, um, so it was, I had to do all kinds of clever things to not give them money and keep them happy. So <laughs> I, I think that was probably the most creative and clever thing I did. I had to do it year after year. So uh, it was fun. It was very fun. Well, I think we're about to turn this episode into a negotiation and high pressure stakes uh, masterclass because this is... <laughs> beyond fascinating and super awesome um so, so so how did you get inspired to deal with russian orphanages in the first place let's we'll, we'll start let's we'll start there uh i've lived a colorful life um <laughs> i was brought into a uh a technology incubator company basically it was um a group that said we've got technologies that are amazing but we need money to start companies with them do you want to help 
Sure. Everybody wrote checks and the whole thing was a scam. The CEO was stealing all the money. Oh. And I couldn't prove that without going to Uzbekistan at the time, which is, as they call it now, one of the stands. It was one of the former Soviet countries, and now it's an independent country. Mm-hmm. What the Soviets did, so this is pre-breakup of the Soviet Union, they, they kept their, mere, um, their, their space agency, their National Institute of the Health, their Science Foundation, NASA. They kept everything at the same location because... You have that brain power. Why would you separate it and put NASA in Houston and Cape Canaveral, NIH in Washington, D.C., the FDA in Boston? It didn't make any sense. So they put it all there. When the Soviet Union fell apart, Uzbekistan had its own borders and they had all of the technology like in a warehouse because that facility still existed and now in a separate country. But they, wow. had, no they had no money from, the, uh, from Moscow. So we were exporting but not smuggling technology out of the uzbekistan bringing it to the united states and starting companies and uh, the problem was we had raised a bunch of money and the premise was the money was to fund the scientists so they could keep making more technology and more companies and i just didn't see any progress so i finally announced to the team i was i was an investor I announced to the team that I had an invitation from the scientists in Uzbekistan to go visit them. And they threw an absolute hissy fit because they hadn't hadn't been giving them any money. And I knew then kind of, but I still had to go there. So I went there and told the scientists what was going on. And they, they were very thankful. While I was there though, I had 10 days of meetings, one hour a day, that's all. And I was advised for safety, not to leave the hotel. They just said, you're not safe as an American. It's still, they don't, we don't like America dictatorship. It was a Muslim dictatorship with a strong arm leader. You're an American, you're a target. Don't leave the hotel, except when the car picks you up to meet with these scientists. And I said, that's, that's ridiculous. So I called my church and said, what volunteer opportunities are there in Tashkent, Uzbekistan? And they said, well, you could, you could, you know, you could do um, evangelical work, basically stand on a street corner and hand out Bibles in a Muslim country where they kill Americans. I said, how about uh, they've got a plethora of orphanages? Would you work in an orphanage? And I said, sure. I love kids. I'll happily work in an orphanage. And I figured an orphanage, they're not going to find me there. So I would go, I do my one hour meeting every day. And then I'd go to the orphanage and it was amazing. You'd go into like a high school gym size facility. And they had just back-to-back steel cribs from like the 1950s with chip, chipped off paint and a kid in every crib and not a sound, not one sound. And it's because there was one adult worker. They paid no attention to the kids. And when you cry out for help as a little kid and nobody answers, you learn just not to, you just learn. So yeah. basically <laughs> mentally and physically rotting in these cribs. And I came back home and talked to my wife and said, I know what we could do to change a life is we could adopt a kid from Eastern Europe. And so we ended up not adopting from Uzbekistan. We adopted from Russia, but uh, we ended up adopting three. And uh, that's how I got started. But once you get involved in it, then you see the enormity of the problem, most of which was caused by the Soviet Union went bankrupt. We don't talk about it that way, but socialism went bankrupt. And if you were what we would call a welfare mom, you got to check every month and you could basically feed, not well, but you could feed your kids in Russia 
once they went bankrupt, the check stopped. You still got kids, but not a dime. So now you don't work. You have no income. What do you do? And what parents did was they just dropped their kids off at the doorsteps of orphanages. They had no funding either. So uh, it was a disaster. And these kids were, they're just rotting. And so once we got, once we adopted three, we saw the problem and said we could do better there too. So we started a foundation. So that's how we got started with all that kind of stuff. So, wow. So, so I, I love that, that you knew that uh, yeah, being stuck in a hotel room all, all day, obviously isn't very appealing. And so you uh, just, uh, they did have three stations of Russian television, three and a little thir- <laughs> 13 inch, little 13 inch black and white TV. And I remember it was the, I was there during the winter Olympics. So the only thing you got was like, Oh, here's the Slovenian fencing guy because the Russian TV would put on, you know, whatever they put on, I'm going, I don't know anything about fencing. The commentating is in Russian and it's a, (laughs) it's a grainy picture on a 13 inch television and on the beds in the hotel were five and a half feet long. So I'm six, six, five. So I thought, okay, this is, I put, I, you know, kind of stacked up at two beds. I've stacked one on top of the other and put the mattresses end to end. I thought I'm just going to try to lie down on the floor because I can't sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody can sleep in a five and a half. Yeah, so I thought anything's better than this, and there was nothing for me to do in the hotel room. So I thought, yeah, I can I can get out and and go do something of, of value. So I'd go for like four or five hours a day. So uh, and what I would do is just go hold the kids. I didn't do much. I mean, it's pretty awful, but uh, I mean for the kids, it was fine for me. But uh, well, and, uh, and and tell me again because I, I know it's like a, sometimes it's a good thing when you don't help the kids if they're crying excessively because you do want to teach them that they can't cry excessively too right so what, what is that balance out of curiosity because i want to be a parent someday and i want to know like obviously it's like the when a kid screams do you help them or not help them kind of thing so what does that yeah, this, balance look like this is great you're actually dealing with it through western culture and two parents or even one parent that cares mm-hmm. this is one adult daycare worker and 250 kids oh so my there's God. no there's no interaction with any child anywhere and so what happened with the kids is they would adapt to their circumstances, which were, there's no sense crying because nobody's coming. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other part that happens because, you know, kids are learning and um, they just absorb everything sensory around them. You have no sens- sensory stimulation. So they, they basically become, um, they're not retarded, but they just, their brain goes to rot because you have to have that developmental stimulation mm-hmm. and physical Well, you're locked in a crib. They don't learn to walk. Nothing. And I, you just walked in there and it was heartbreaking. So, mm. and I'll tell you the worst part about it. Um, I knew I had agreed to do that in advance. I thought, what, what would uh, they not get? And so I brought, I didn't need much luggage. So I brought a bag of oranges. I'm thinking fresh citrus. Cause I, I'm sure the nutrition was bad. Cause I'd already been, I'd seen some of it. So I brought a bag of fresh oranges that they could slice up and, and the kids could have. And the one worker said, oh, this is great. Thank you for doing this. And I came back the next day and it was a readily apparent none of the kids had had any oranges, but they were all gone. And stupid me, I just kicked myself. I should have realized the person working there was living in abject poverty as well. But they probably mm. did. kept four or five oranges for their own family and then went down to the market and sold the rest for cash. So my my luggage allotment went to somebody's pocket and I figured myself, but that you you do that kind of stuff. And what you're talking about is you and your, you and your wife want to have kids and you want to be good parents. 
it's all natural. You'll know the difference in cries between I'm desperate for attention and, oh, I'm really hungry, or I've got a wet diaper, or I flipped out of the crib because I finally could get out of the crib and I'm hurt. All those mm. cries, and you know those intuitively. <laughs> You'll know when to respond and how much and all that other stuff. And, you know, that's all good. But, yeah, the difference was there was no way I could do that in a week. I couldn't, I couldn't hold 250 kids, and it didn't make any difference. I don't know. It didn't hurt, but why would I not do it? Well, I, I do like uh, – there's like a metaphor of like uh, – an old man, there's like all these starfish on the beach and like, they're like all, you know, drying out in the sun. And this old man is like taking one starfish at a time and tossing it back into the ocean so it can survive. And this kid goes up to the old man and says, what are you doing? He's like, I'm saving these starfish. And the kid goes, but there's, there's hundreds and thousands of them. You can't save them all. And he picks up another one and goes, well, I can save this one and tosses yeah. it back into the ocean. And so I do agree that, you know, you want to solve both the problem, but also the temporary solution too. in the meantime. I, I'm, I'm a big fan that you're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And what if everybody did a little bit to be a part of a solution, whatever you want, climate change, homelessness, take any problem that, that we face, racism, yeah, you're part of the solution. You're part of the problem. So, what are you doing to to make a difference? Doesn't have yeah. to change the world. Just have to change a little part of your world. So. I love that. I love that. And, and so, let's, let's dive into uh, when the mafia, Russian mafia, got involved. I mean, obviously, we, there's a lot of movies, a lot of TV shows of how tough a mafia in any country is, and especially how ruthless you know the Russian mafia is. And I think this, this comedian, I got to watch this skit again. He went viral for pretending to know Russian when he did it, when he made friends with the Russian mafia. So tell us yeah, how, how that interaction first started and how that, that happened. Well, it wasn't, it was not, not by invitation. They just showed up. They kind of knew when I was going to be there next. I would go there in the beginning. I'd go there three times a year to, to help set up the foundation. But we had a retired police lieutenant or whatnot. He had 20 years in the force. So he was in his mid forties. His wife was bilingual. She was an English teacher at an American school. So she was great. And as I joked with the retired cop, what's the difference between cops and mafia? Cause the mafia owns the cops. And as he said, and he had broken English, but he just said, we have arrangements. <laughs> perfect. He was the perfect guy because he could, when we had to, you know, when and invariably he was originally not part of it, it was just her. She was running the foundation. Well, when it, when the mafia just showed up, he helped because uh, mm -hmm. they weren't going to hurt him either. I don't think, but there was not, if they wanted to kill us all, they could have. So his mm -hmm. job is to keep them happy. And my rule, I had one rule, they get no money. So what I mm -hmm. did for seven and a half years running I thought, what else do they want? We were in an outpost. We were in um, Kaliningrad, which is on the far west edge, and it's where they used to put together nuclear subs. But when the Soviet Union went belly up, you don't build or create nuclear subs. So now you get a half million people there that are unemployed with no money. It was a, it was a, it was a shithole. And yeah. So a lot of poverty. Well, what I realized, if you're in the mafia in Kaliningrad, you're an apprentice, basically. You're at the bottom of the barrel because it's a hierarchical organization. What you really want to be in is, is Moscow because that's where the yeah. power is. And where they made most of their money was money changing. They would change, uh, tourists would change money. And what they would do 
is they'd have a percentage of it that was counterfeit. So when you give them 20 US dollars, you'd get back a percentage of counterfeit Russian money, which is you can't trade it on world currencies. So you can come in with as many US dollars as you want. You can bring home rubles, but you can't go to your bank and say, oh, I, have, I have an extra $1,000 in rubles. Can you transfer them back? No, it's not a traded world currency. So, wow. but they, that, so that was a good business for them to be in. But that's about all they did. And there wasn't much else. So they just inserted themselves in our cause and said, we're going to give you protection. We're, we're dealing with kids. We didn't need protection. <laughs> yeah. So what, we, what I did is I thought, okay, it's a hierarchical what they need is they need to show the guys in Moscow that they're doing a great job in this outpost. So I uh, had a, like a tr- little trophy shop near our house that I knew did Cyrillics with a computer and they would etch in and you could use any, any um, language. So if you had to give an award in French, you'd say it's the, you know, it's the most valuable player and you could do that in French. Yeah. So I would go there and, and uh, in Russian Cyrillics, I would have them create me like a plaque, humanitarian of the year. I'd give them a different award every year, which cost me $12. It was a $12 bowling trophy was essentially what it was. And then what I did was I would call the local media because this is local media has nothing to report on. It's like local media in the U.S. What do you report on? Sports and weather. There is none in a small town. Yeah. You have to create the news. So we would call the all the tape, you know, the the local media, they'd come out. We'd have the mayor there because the mayor has nothing to do in a small town like that. And he'd give them this award. And then I would get up and speak in English. And I'd say, you sons of bitches are the most repulsive human beings I've ever met. <laughs> and I would say it in English. And my my trans, my my uh, director would look at me like, and, uh, and they'd film the whole thing. This is in the days of VCRs. Oh, so, that's so cool. <laughs> and then she would get up and tra- translate, and she would speak it in perfect Russian. You're the, you're the key to our organization. You're humanitarian. <laughs> and, and then what they'd do is they'd send the, the videotape back to, to Moscow, and these guys would get huge kudos from the higher-ups, and that's how they got points because they weren't going to make any more money it's just there weren't very many ways to make money in this little small town. So mm-hmm. I did that for seven and a half years. And every year I created a different award. And we had essentially the same thing. And then I, and we'd go to a bakery and get a cake and we'd have, uh, and we'd do this. But it's all on film. And so they're getting tons of attention. And it worked. For a $12 bowling trophy every year, I could bring in half a million dollars in relief. in cash. You had to bring in cash to, to the kids. But I was not going to give them a dime. And uh, the final... Thing. It, it ended abruptly was um, my uh, director emailed me one day and said, all our money was taken out of the bank. And she, I said, how did that happen? She said, the, they don't call them the mafia, but the mob came and just cleaned out the bank because they, they really run everything. So they just went to the bank director and said, we want the money in that bank account. And uh, they had told me for a couple of years, no more bowling trophies. <laughs> uh. <laughs> and they kept pounding it. I said, well, this, okay, I can't do it this year. And I'd postpone it. And so I got eight years and it was, it was actually kind of fun because it was a little cat and mouse game and basically I had to outsmart them or uh, I had to give them something of value that didn't cost the kids and keep them happy. And that's a hard thing to do sometimes in life. But I was happy to p- pitch in, less than 20 bucks for a bowling trophy. And every year I had to create a new ding and we'd change the ceremony, all that kind of stuff. But uh, they never showed up at the orphanage. We never saw them otherwise, except when they wanted money. And as soon as they came to town, they wanted money because they knew I had brought in 
suitcases full of us cash <laughs> whoa <laughs> so, but it was it was yeah, it was fun it was kind of like smuggling stuff out of uzbekistan it was, it was just a game it was just a game and it was fun well you would carry luggages full of cash from the u.s to uzbekistan like a few times no, a year? Not to, not to, i went to kaliningrad you had to go to moscow you had to fly too far east to moscow and then come back to kaliningrad because they did all the customs in moscow so that's just the way they worked their screwball system. You couldn't go from Frankfurt to Kaliningrad, which was a shuttle flight. You had to go five hours east and then come back four and a half hours west. Uh, it didn't make a lot of sense, but that's, you did all the customs in, in Moscow. What you had to do when you got out, you had to declare all the cash. Oh, and, this and the problem is, is the uh, boots were This is pre-TSA, um, right? Oh, there's no TSA. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, there was TSA, but there was no, uh, this was post 9-11. It is. And that was the tricky part. So we were the first, I, my, my organization was the first legal nonprofit, foreign nonprofit to do work in, in Russia because Russia didn't trust us at all. And I couldn't get you a U.S. tax receipt unless I had legitimate paperwork in the U.S. And to get the U.S. paperwork, I had to have Moscow or Russia say, yes, it's a legitimate charity. It took us almost a year to get that because they... They just didn't trust anything. And so, so I had a legitimate functioning Russian foreign charity. And the problem, of course, everybody can, was concerned that it was any fundraising from a country, not your own was for terrorism. That's what everybody was yeah. worried about. So they didn't want to approve anything, but I, I had it completely uh, and legitimately. We started without it, but the first year maybe, but uh, we weren't doing a whole lot the first year. We're getting set up. And uh, so yeah, it was all just a game. Stuff. But you really did feel like a smuggler carrying all that cash to the airport and traveling with all that. Then it was, it was just you or you travel with someone else. No, I'd usually travel by myself because nobody really wanted to go. It's, it wasn't a fun trip. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, that wasn't really smuggling. That was, that was legit. That's smuggling. No, I, I know it wasn't smuggling, but like, it felt like smuggling. Cause like who carries that much cash to travel with? Like, I'd already done smuggling out of Uzbekistan, which is much more dangerous if you get caught. Uh, I was, if I got caught, I just said, I might, I might have to forfeit some of the cash, but I was declaring the cash. I was, I wasn't hiding anything. Mm. Uzbekistan, we were taking stuff out and we weren't supposed to be. So. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So, so, and so tell us some of the, the high stakes points in those eight years. Like you said, you know, at one point they had a gun that they put on the table and said, give us money now. Or, well, that's or, every or, year. Or every like, year. That's how they started. We do it in the park. We, and, and, you know, we go to this little, little park and you'd sit on a picnic and it would be, February in Russia. And you go, why are we meeting in a park? That was our retired cop guy. He said the, the safest place to meet is in public because you can't, you know, people hear or see or whatever. So we'd yeah. always go to like near the little open market. You know, there's always like a little grassy area and some really crappy picnic tables. Fine. So we'd sit someplace like that. So within a hundred yards of us, there were people and that was fine. They all knew the mafia guys because the mafia guys, they're around town. Uh, it's a small town. Everybody knows who they are. So yeah. We would go meet there, but they would always, they, they were very clear. The theater for them was to make sure that we knew that they had guns and that we should be afraid of them, which I wasn't afraid of them. Cause I thought, unless they're going to shoot me in the head, which they're not, cause I'd been here enough times. This is just another, I had to keep reinventing the game enough to keep them appeased for this round. You go, good. That's all I have to do. I don't have to win for years and years and years. I have to win for this round. So, 
We'd change the dynamics. We'd change the award. We'd buy ourselves time. We'd, you know, we'd stall, we'd postpone. We'd say, well, we don't have enough cash this time. Maybe we can, but maybe we can do something next. We just, you know, we would just kind of every trick in the book, but uh, I had to buy as much time as I could. We, we bought about eight years. So you, what about, were you, were you scared the first couple of times that after the first couple of times you're like, okay, they're not going to harm me or. The first time when my wife and I went, my wife and I went there to adopt what was our first son, we had to bring 30,000 us dollars. And they, in Russia, what they do to devalue the currency is they'll just declare like on a Tuesday on Friday, we have new money with new pictures on it. And you have to turn in all your old money and get new money or by next Friday, it's worthless. So they would do that trick all the time. So they didn't trust old U.S. dollars. So I'd have to go to my bank and the bank doesn't, they don't have 30,000 new U.S. $100 bills. So I'd have to go for a series of about a month before we went. So I got, I got 30,000 new U.S. dollars. Now this is, this is 2000, right after 9-11. This is 2001. So what we have to do when we get there, and they told us, we had people in the U.S. who were Russian who said, here's how it'll go. When you get there, we'll have somebody there at the airport to pick you up. They'll take good care of you. Don't worry about it. Um, his name is Yuri. Perfect. <laughs> I, go, I go through a glass booth and count out 30,000 U.S. dollars with everybody at the airport looking at me, including all the guys you're looking at when you go, going, that guy's mafia. You can just look at him and go, that guy's mafia, that guy's mafia, that guy's mafia. So I make it through. I did the paperwork. Okay, that worked. Okay, but now everybody knows I'm carrying 30,000 US dollars. And I go, and they, there's a sign, and I said, kind of like a B grade movie, are you Yuri? No, he couldn't make it. I'm Boris. And I'm going, oh, oh great. No. I have no contact other than Yuri, and Yuri's not there, it's Boris. And I'm going, okay, that guy shot Boris in the head. He's going to take me, steal the 30,000. Oh, oh, and he says, and I need your passport. I'm going great. So I'm going to hand him the thirty thousand and the passport, and you go. Okay, that's the moment of truth. We'll figure it out. And he, sure enough, he came back about five minutes later. I thought, okay, this will probably work. And it was like that all the way along. They didn't tell us anything. The only thing, only instruction I had was Yuri, and they said he'll get you to where you need. To. <laughs> and everything like worked like that in in Russia, and you had to work your way through things. And it was, but it was really like a bad B grade movie, and you were starring in it. Um, but they didn't, I, we handed over the 30,000 cause that's what we needed to do. The adoption It was stupid expensive. I don't know why, but mafia is involved there too. You did what you did on faith a little bit. And then we did it three times. So the second and third time we were more experienced, like we knew who to trust and who not to, and we knew where to be afraid and where we're not to, but mostly it wasn't scary, like afraid. It was just like unknown, like afraid. It wasn't like dangerous, but you just say, Oh, we just gave thirty thousand bucks in our and both of our passports. What if that guy doesn't come back? No, we're going to be in the U.S. embassy in an hour, and they're going to say, "So let me get this straight. Nobody stole it. You gave it to them." <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, we gave both of them. Why would you do something stupid like that? That's what we thought. Yeah. We came back five minutes later, and he had to. You have to register with the police. So he went and registered our passports with the police, and then came back. We didn't know that. We had no idea. So we thought, okay. Uh, and that was how we got started. And so from then on, I just said, okay, these, these guys, they do run everything. They're in charge of the courts. They're in charge of every business. They're in charge of the banks. They, uh, that's why they were involved with, um, adoptions. Uh, wow. And, and what just, about, 
what are, what are some times where uh, trust got breached where like you thought you could trust someone and they turned or, or they obviously before they cleared out your bank, any other dangerous situations or anything else that surprised you that no. the, the trust was broken? No, mostly what would happen is you'd get to a point where you have to do mountains of paperwork, mountains, and you have to have every page notarized. And then you have to have to have an apostolic, I think is what they call it, which is a witness to the notary. So it's like, isn't the notary supposed to confirm that your signature is good? Then you had to have it certified by somebody else that said, yeah, the notary is good. And each one of these costs money and you do it on the U S side and then you ship it all over. You couldn't, there was no scanning. You had to ship it over via FedEx or whatever. And about two weeks later they had it. And then they sit on it and they just sit on it to run the price up. They say, Oh, your case is really complicated. No, it's not. I told you exactly what we needed. We sent it all. What, what's not, what's not good. Well, then they finally approve it. You get over there and they'd say, your paperwork is all wrong. You should go home. No way. We just came, came all this way and we left our kids with a babysitter for 14 days and we're here. We're doing this right now. All they were doing was trying to drive the price up by saying, this is a rush. So what we'd have to do is we'd have to go to some office and say, well, we know somebody. Okay. So we're going to go, we're going to go talk to Andrew who's in the such and such office and he's going to rush this for us. Well, they'd go in and they, and they would take the paperwork, our the handlers and they'd say they'd go in for like 10 minutes and all they're doing is positioning for a bribe because mm-hmm. they're a county or a city worker they make nothing they go there all day they do nothing all day too yeah and so it got to after about 10 of these because the bribe was sometimes 10 bucks us only us cash no russian cash. <laughs> sometimes as much as 50 it was if it was important so I finally got to where, and it, I'd say it in English and I had a translator the translator knew exactly what I was saying but the other people didn't we get to a door and I go, okay, what is this goofball office that does nothing? And they'd say, well, this, this one, they're going to, they're going to certify that the last certification is good. You know, <laughs> we, already did this. we already paid for all this. So I'd say, is this a $20 problem or a $50 problem? Cause I don't want to waste the time. The problem is they were dragging yeah. it out. The more they dragged it out, the more they could charge you. And I said, yeah, let's get four of these in a day instead of two in a day. They were just ratcheting up pressure to, increase the bribe. And so I just started, I said, tell me which one it is. Let's be done with it. And they had to pretend like they were insulted that I asked, but <laughs> I could never enter the room. My translator and our, whoever the adoption people would go in there and they pretend like they had a negotiation, but essentially they'd give me some of the money back. They'd say, I'd give them five tens and they'd come out and give me 30 bucks back or sometimes 20 bucks. I didn't care. We just paid 30 grand. Yeah. Another $500 in bribes between a dozen or two dozen county officials. You just wanted it done so you could keep going. And yeah. they were drinking. So it was like, so the second and third adoptions, we got much better at that. They were four days shorter each because we started over bribing on purpose. We just said, okay, instead of 500 over four days, what if we did a thousand over one day? Way better. Uh, just because we get home three days, the value of your time and the emotional hassle and all that. We just said, yeah, let's do that. We got better. Well, I mean, you just learned, you, you know, you, and you would do yeah. the same thing. You just say, you know, uh, we don't, we just have a different system here. If you yeah. pay the, the county can't take bribes and if they did, they get fired or if they got found yeah. out there officially, they would too, but everybody there takes a bribe. Everybody takes yeah. a bribe on a side hustle. Fine. I'm good with that because the value of the dollar was so high that for a $10 bribe, that, uh, the average wage was 40 bucks a month you gave them basically a week's salary. And I was like, give everybody 10 bucks. I don't care. Yeah. Let's get <laughs> well, it done. Yeah. Yeah. Right, let's, just, let's just get on with it. So, 
Wow. When I do, I think uh, I read that's how Greece actually got into such financial trouble is that all their tax collectors were getting bribed by companies so that no, so the country never collected taxes. (laughs) Nobody paid taxes. Yeah. Because any system is going to get optimized and gamified. Any system Mm -hmm. anywhere will get optimized. Everybody knows how to gamify the system. Or if they don't, you know, who who pays taxes in Russia? Same thing. Nobody pays rent because nobody, nobody has any declared earnings. So you got to get money. So yeah, same, same. Most of the world works this way. Well, that's such a a fascinating and such a cool story. And I I like how how much it it does apply to entrepreneurship in life that like, all right, we made it to the Russia. Oh, great. Another wall. All right. We got to this county office. Okay. Great. Another wall. (laughs) We got our our seed funding and it's only enough for a year and we really need 18 months. Entrepreneurs face that every single day. They say, all right, then we're going to have to get a product out faster than we thought. How do we redesign our thinking? Because really? euphemistically we got enough cash for a year we thought we needed for 18 months and we can't get to series a until we have a product that generates revenue shit it happens every day as an entrepreneur and it's part of the scaling game you say you either solve that problem or you or you shouldn't be an entrepreneur because i don't know any entrepreneur that says we're fully resourced fully the org chart is fully mapped out and the market is wide open no way not a chance. <laughs> you're, you're, you're up against huge obstacles every day and you either dive in and play and love it or you just say, I'll work at the post office. It's just safer. I know what that is. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with either one. Don't play the entrepreneur game unless you're, or the scaling game unless you're ready for kind of anything goes and you're going to, you're going to hit all of it, all of it at some level in some form. You know, you may as well count on six huge, brick walls that you can't see right now popping up on no notice happens every day. Yeah. And it's either. All right. That's, that's it. We're going to handle it or don't play that game. Mm. And so how did you learn to coach people to o- overcome these impossible circumstances of like, um, yeah, only getting uh, a year of funding. We needed 18 months. Like uh, yeah, t- tell us about your, your coaching journey of learning how to help people overcome all this. Yeah, so I'm I'm fortunate that I'm I'm not trained as a coach. I'm a CEO. I'm a nine-time CEO, and so I've been in their shoes, and I failed. I mean, I've, I've succeeded. I've had two big successes—not big, but I've had two nice successes. I've had a couple that just a couple of companies that thankfully just faded away, and I let them. And then I've had somewhere I had to write a check to get out because it was cheaper than paying the leases and getting sued and all that stuff. So you just go, oh man, that was. A, absolute fuster cluck. Fine. But in doing that, you know, you learn because you've done it wrong or you've done it well enough or you've done it wrong and gotten away with it. Um, like right now, people are talking about, should we do a reduction in force? I don't know. The CEO always knows. They know their business. Now I can walk them through doing a, a reduction in force, how to think about it, when to do it, how deep to go, and the messaging of how to do it, because what most people want to do is they want to think about that. As soon as you've thought about it for even that, once it's entered your mind, you better be done with it in about two weeks. Because once it enters your mind, everybody in the organization sort of knows, or they're worried, and then nobody's doing anything. They're starting to float resumes. They're starting to make sure they've got their bases covered. What if it's me? 
do you think they'll cut our whole team? That's the whole uh, energy of the company now. The faster and more surgical you do that and the messaging that goes along with that, you're good to go or not. But that's, is that coaching or is that experience? It's both. I can, I can help them through, I have co- coaching methodologies, but I'm not a, I'm not a, um, a textbook coach that way. Uh, most coaches have a background in psychology. I don't believe in it. I mean, I believe in it for what psychology is good for. Business is not so much about psychology. Business is about action. Business is about, I think it's more about, um, bio, it's, it's based more, rooted more in biology and uh, evolution. We make steps forward and then sometimes step back. And then we make step forward. You don't suddenly, you know, you, you hear some coaches and they say, oh, we do transformation. We do it overnight. And you go, it doesn't happen overnight. Your body can't handle it overnight. So I do a lot with evolution because most companies work evolutionary and scaling is just when the evolutionary steps happen so large and so fast that you go from zero to scale overnight. That's like uh, software companies have better chance of doing that because a million people can buy one product and just download it. You can scale really fast. Mm-hmm. If you're building cars, much harder to do because you've got to ramp up production and physical products much harder. But yeah, there's a roadmap for both. There's a way to scale for both. And it's a really fun game. And uh, yeah, I work with the CEO where they're at because they're not like me. That's good. They're not like me. Um, we don't need two of me and we don't need two of them. Um, between us, we'll work really well together. And how, how big is your team and how many clients do you work with at a time out of curiosity? So I, I limit myself to 20 because I also write books and I enjoy that. And I do have to go on the road sometimes with teams. So I'll say, I'm going to be in Trenton, New Jersey this fall with a team for a week. Well, that means I don't coach that week. What do I do with the clients that were scheduled? I got to reschedule them. So I can't do on-site work with more than 20, 20 clients. And then I have associate coaches as well who are super gifted and have a different specialty than I do. So I worked with one yesterday. He's going to build out an entire level of um, middle managers in a, manufacturing plant. One, I don't know anything about that. And two, I'm not, I'm not very good with that level in the organization. He loves it and is gifted at perfect. Um, he doesn't work for me. He works with me. He's a, he's on contract. And so he and I work together on that and that works really well. I've got four or five coaches that I hire on contract to work with me. Wow. 20, 20 clients at a time is a team of four people managing 20 clients. And of course, each of those 20 clients have companies that I'm sure. Oh, no. Well, the 20 clients are all mine. Those are 20 CEOs. Wow. I only, I only meet with them twice, uh, once every two weeks for 90 minutes. Mm. Oh, so that's, okay. not, that's not a ton of hours on the schedule, mm. but it gives me time to write. It gives me time to have a break in between because I've got to be present. So I've got to bunch of practices to keep myself fresh. Cause if you load me up with whatever's going on at yours and I drag that into my next call, cause they only have 30 seconds in me doing calls that doesn't work so well. So there's breaks in between and those buffers are, are needed. I like to do four clients in a day with a half hour in between mm. because it's the most fun thing in the world. I, I love doing it and I'm built really well built for it. But if I had to do six in a day, it'd be too much. I wouldn't get physically tired or even emotionally tired. It's just too long, just too long of a day. So, and it's, I owe it to the, to the clients to be fresh and fully present. But if you have 20 clients 
That means you have 10 a week on your schedule. I can do four, four, and two in two and a half days if I really schedule it well. It never quite works out quite that neatly, but I could do three days and have all the clients and then I got two days for other stuff. Yeah, make makes sense. Yeah. Um, and when you're talking to clients and I, and, uh, I know that you obviously you're proud of the Russian mafia thing. What, what is uh, one of your proud moments of taking a client from A to B or taking a company from A to B once you got brought on or once you started coaching the CEOs? I, there's a lot of success stories. My favorites are the ones where um, the product has impact. Uh, I like companies. I don't specialize in them. I, I, I take clients. I mean, I'm, I'm respectful and I'm um, impressed with entrepreneurs all the time. I mean, what they're creating is always amazing. But I especially like companies. Um, there's a company. They're not clients, but uh, they're one of my favorites. I've worked with them and done some things alongside them. They have a belief that uh, waste is obsolete. So they literally recycle used pampers, uranium rods, like spent uranium rods, because there's no reason why we should throw anything away into a landfill. And that's the, they're a big company. They will probably do some funding. They've done lots of fun fundraising. Um, people think they're a nonprofit because they do the work of a nonprofit. They're a for-profit company. Wow. They, well, what I love is they go to places like Philip Morris and partner with Philip Morris and give them all the credit to do a marketing campaign about how Philip Morris, obviously it's them doing it with Philip Morris, is reducing cigarette butt waste by an innovative program. Well, these guys did the figuring out and said, you guys help us with this because you're there's nobody on the planet that says smoking is good for the planet and throwing cigarette butts on in the gutter is even better. So why he said, I don't have any problem with giving them credit because they're helping to, they're not going to go out of business tomorrow. Yeah. So we can, we can complain and protest or we can just solve the problem. So I love their mentality and they make money doing it. And the planet is a better, if you will, cleaner place. doesn't mean people are going to stop smoking but let's have the cigarette butts. Um, see, they're doing all kinds, they do uh, things with McDonald's, you, reusable packaging. You know, you sit there and you're finished and then you throw it all down and, you know, you have that tray and you shove it into the, into the thing. Mm -hmm. no, 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 no. So now they've built recycling, re recycled packaging. It saves McDonald's money, but it's also good for the planet. And to the extent that people want to do that, they participate. Great. Good for everybody. I love working with a company like that because they're yeah. also... I like that they're for profit. I'm, you know, it's quite, they could be nonprofit. But I love that they're for profit. And they're getting paid for it because they're doing unbelievable work on behalf of all of us. So, yeah, it's it's fun to partner with companies like that because that's really what I do. I'm I'm not responsible for them scaling. They are. I, I partner with them like anybody. So it'd be it'd be no different than them hiring somebody to, you know, be in charge of marketing or product or or hiring or whatnot those are the people that do the work. Um, my job is to help the CEO and sometimes the C-suite team to, to get what they want. Yeah, it's, an, it's an honor to do that every day. So I, I got a bunch of companies that are just doing incredible things. And that's really fun. Really fun. And what's, what's that company called? If you're, if you're able to say, sure, sure. it's called TerraCycle. It's one TerraCycle. word, but the T and the C are both capitalized, but it's TerraCycle. They're out of, uh, they're out of Trenton, New Jersey. I got a couple of clients in Trenton, New Jersey, but uh, 
Yeah, the CEO is super clever. He, he started the company in a dorm room in Princeton, like at 20. And uh, he and a, he and a you know, classmate started it. And uh, it's a, uh, so what, uh, that was 2002, maybe. So they're about 20 years old and they're a gazillion dollars, a big company now, and they're getting bigger. And uh, yeah. They're it's able to take all trash and turn it into recycled products. Uh, not necessarily, but um, sometimes they reuse some, but like used pampers. How do you recycle? Who would want to do that? Yeah. And the real problem, what they realize, so this is a, it just tells you how clever this, they are and they have to be this clever. Uh, they realize that, so you're, you and your wife are good, or your fiance are going to get married pretty soon. You're going to have kids at some point and you're going to yeah. use some sort of diaper service. Let's say it's pampers. Most people, you know, they have that bin that stinks and they, you know, they tie it up and they put it in the trash and it goes to the landfill. What they've done in order to incentivize you to give them the used pampers, they charge a little bit extra, like let's say 10 bucks a week. And they do bio data on the waste and they give you a report on an app every week and say, uh, you know, your, your child is uh, vitamin C deficient and they're anemic. So go to your, when you go to the pediatrician next time, cause the pediatrician doesn't check for that. Yeah. You know, because it's coming out of the bio data and you go for 10 bucks a week, who wouldn't do that? Cause Pampers cost a fortune. And so what you do is you leave, you leave that bag not out for the trash. They have their own collection. They come get it and they, they can recycle the absorbent part of it and reuse it. They just sterilize it, sanitize it and reuse it. Now they don't, they don't make that same diaper twice. They could, but they can use the main parts and what wow. you get, you get an added benefit. How creative they just, in, you know, like Philip Morris, they make Philip Morris, the hero, and, and then, uh, and they've gotten grief for that sometimes to say, how can you partner with McDonald's? It's, it's, it's gut fill or it's horrible. It makes people fat. How can you partner with Philip Morris? Well, problem is there's cigarette butts everywhere. They could, they could protest or they could, uh, we talked earlier, you're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. They said, mm-hmm. let's, let's just, let's just eliminate cigarette butts. Yeah. Let's eliminate putting pampers in landfills. Why, why would we do that? But where else do you put them? I mean, people kind of go, how do you, how do you do that? How about spent uranium rods? Yeah. They're no, go, no longer useful at a nuclear power plant, but they're still emitting, you know, whatever, whatever it is, energy. The energy can be used for something else. Just can't be useful at a power plant. Well, we'll, there, we'll there's a large uh, country in this world that we won't mention that takes them and dumps them in the ocean because it's no cost. You just put them yeah. up and dump them in the ocean. And they know that. So what they had to do is they had to, they had to convince that country that they wanted to buy them like a consumer. And the only reason they bought them is so that they can keep them out of the ocean. And then you, as long as you can reuse the energy still coming off there, it's a viable product. But they had to take that on without having been, they weren't in that business. They just said the idea of, of doing that over time is it's deplorable and you can't go and yell at the country and say, you suck and you shouldn't do that because they're just going to hide it even more. So they just said, we'd love to buy it. Clever. Well, how do you think like that? Well, this is why I love working with entrepreneurs and CEOs. Yeah. Like you said too, just like, you know, one of the things that I did get inspired by when I was in high school, we had to do like a project on a company and say how some companies were corrupt and like 
I think I had I was assigned Coca-Cola and like all the unethical things that Coca-Cola does. But then you find out, oh, Coca-Cola actually helps fund um, prison systems to help, um, you know, prevent people from going to prison or giving people better care once they're in prison kind of thing. And so the answer is like, no matter how corrupt a company is, there's a good chance they're willing to help in some way to make them look that much better. <laughs> uh, it's just a marketing and PR campaign. And some of it is, no, this is what we really believe in. But, yep, you're not going to stop Coca-Cola from, from selling sweetened sugar water. Yeah. <laughs> you know, can you, can you maximize the good they do? And can you make sure that Coke bottles and Coke cans don't end up in landfills? Yeah. Ah. Mm-hmm. And would Coke help you par- do that and then take credit for it? Why not give them credit for it? Oh, yeah. 100%. yeah. And if it helps Coke sell more Coke, I can't imagine that the people that buy more Coke are doing so having never bought a sugary soda before. They're pr- they might just switch from Pepsi and say, oh, I'm going to go to Coke because they're doing something to take care of the earth. Yeah. You're not inventing new markets, I don't think. I think you're just, you might get some people that say, you know, I really respect what they're doing. So for our next bar- barbecue, I'm going to get a case of Coke instead of a case of fill in the blank. Okay. Yeah. I don't know how all that works, but these guys have all that data. And they, so, but that's one of their, it's not the rules. It's just their strategy is to give the, nobody knows TerraCycle and they could care less. They don't need to be known. They do know Philip Morris. And if Philip Morris gets credit for helping clean up, uh, it's, um, he said it's the number one litter product in the United States is cigarette butts. Wow. I, I never thought of it, but you think, oh yeah, you do see them everywhere. You see, you see them on city streets. They're, they end up in, in, um, you know, along the curb in just residential streets. If you have a smoker mm-hmm. on your street, it's a bunch of cigarette butts. Cause a lot of times they go outside to smoke and they just toss them. You know, and I guess they think the street cleaner gets them, but even still you got to, somebody's got to do something with all those. And they just said, let's, let's, uh, let's clean them all up. And I don't know how they do it. But they recycle toothbrushes, stuff like that. You go, yeah, what do you do with an old toothbrush? I keep two of them under the sink so I can scrub out stuff when I need something. But then after that, you go, how many toothbrushes do we use up a year? And I throw them, I probably put them in the recycle bin, but I don't even know. But you don't Mm -hmm. think that because your head's not in that space. What if they had a special spot for that? And I imagine it'd be at the drugstore. It's just a little container and you can put your used toothbrushes in there. Okay. Would people do it? Some people will. That helps. Yeah. And tell us like TerraCycle sounds like a perfect case study. So you said they got started in 2002. Obviously they've yeah. grown a lot since then. Um, yes. Using them, using them as a case study, tell us about that, um, like in depth, um, like into the glass, like what was their scale um, journey like? like what, what did that consist of? What were like the big turning points? What were the failures they made? Yeah. Um, I would love to hear him on your podcast. His name is Tom Zaki. S Z A K Y. And Tom's super bright, as you might imagine, super approachable, but he could tell you their scaling journey and the big, big pivots. I'll tell you one thing that they has been a a hallmark for them is they can hire badass talent way cheaper than American Express or an investment banker could because they're competing for the same. They need, they need really good leadership talent. Yeah. And the, the way they, they do it, that he said, we get two different ends of the spectrum. We either get the first job out of college, young, idealistic. I can still live in mom and dad's basement and I'll work for a little less because I want to work for a company with purpose. Cool. That one makes perfect sense. But the other end that they get where they get their really, really top end 
leadership talent is the last job I'll ever have, which is I'll call it 50 or 55. I've been playing the corporate game because I've needed to put braces on my kids and pay for private school tuition, but I'm pretty much done writing those checks. And I could continue working at fill in. I could fill, continue working at some nameless, faceless, big corporation and make seven fifty or a million bucks. Cause I'm that, you know, I'm in that league. Tom gets them for about one quarter because they want to wake up for the rest of the next 10 years, their last 10 years of their career. And instead of having the soul sucked out of them is to get up and say every day, what I do matters. Mm. And, and he can pay them enough. He can pay them, let's say two fifty instead of a million. And if you've written your big checks, 250 is more than enough. Yeah. The, the lifestyle difference between 250 and 350 isn't much. You're going to cover everything. And so he said, I, we get really, really great top end talent where they compete poorly is in the middle. They don't get the people that have to pay private school tuition and braces because they need every dollar they can. And they got to they take the bucks. And so he said, we, they get it. But he said, we can't compete for it like we can at either end of the spectrum. That's been one of their big competitive advantages in town. They get way better talent than they can afford because what they're doing is so innovative. It's a cool company to work for, but super impactful. And so every day you get up and say, I'm in charge of this initiative and it's making a difference. It solves all kinds of problems to imagine. You never fake calling in sick. If you're sick, you say, I, I shouldn't come in and infect people, but if you love what you do and you love the difference you're making, you never say, you know, uh, oh God, we got another team meeting today. I don't really want to go. I think I'm going to call in sick. Just call in sick. You just don't do yeah. that because what you do matters and it's your, it's part of your life. And I thought, oh, very, very good on them. They're, they understand all that stuff. And so that's been a big factor in them growing. They've been able to attract talent that they would otherwise not be able to afford. And uh, they're a for powerful company, but you know, there's not the margins like you could get in investment banking, let's say. So, yeah. And they don't pay that, that, that way. So he pays well, but you could go make way more money someplace else. So no, yeah, he'd, be, he'd be a great guest. No, I, I'm writing that down. It does sound super inspiring. So I should have to check him out. And, and sounds like, yeah. So shifting into a little bit, it sounds like he was able to find his genius. Obviously you're good at helping people find their genius. Yeah. What do you say to people who are like, I don't know what my genius is and or I don't know how to leverage the genius that I have enough? Yeah, so there's, there's two great questions. The first one is there's there's different methodologies to do it. Uh, you can go online and, and look up. We call it genius talent. That's our, our trademarked name for it. But uh, we have a three-hour process that teases it out of people. Hmm. And the, the outcome is you get a very clear statement of what your singular gift of genius talent is. This process, call it step one, step two, step three, for how you bring it forth. And the reason you, you were giving it, given it and not somebody else, we call that your why. Hmm. Uh, your why makes perfect sense when it's tied to a genius. It doesn't make a lot of sense when you're trying to do your why in a vacuum because it's not so it's not so connected. So we put the three together. Super powerful. It's a fun process. It takes three hours. It's live. I've done it with about 10,000 people. I like to do it with CEOs and uh, entrepreneurs the most because my theory is they can move the planet 
faster than anybody else because they are in the change making business. What would happen if they figured out how they are uniquely gifted, like with it, with a one in a billion, uh, that's the name of the book I wrote about it, but it's really one in seven or eight billion because you're the only person on the planet that has it. How about if you became a CEO using that gift of talent instead of some playbook that you read on a Wall Street, one of the New York Times bestseller list, or, you know, the, there's several CEOs that have written books. You're not Elon Musk, so don't copy his playbook. You're not Jeff Bezos, so don't copy his playbook. It's interesting and fascinating and admirable what, how they work and how they think. You're not that. So copying it is only ever going to be a bad B version of that. Figure out what you're brilliant at and then lead and play that way. And you'll scale your company a lot faster and do it with your team and figure out what makes them tick too. Then you start, you start playing from the advantage of I'm the only person in the planet that can do this. The way I'm going to do marketing, I know you guys don't quite get it, but watch. And they'll go, you go, man, that's awesome. Yeah, that's perfect. You may not even call it marketing. You just say, well, what if we did this, this, and this? So I know what my genius talent is, and that helps me too. And so I redesigned all of my business activities and personal as well um, to take care of that. The reason I coach CEOs is... Um, I specialize. My genius talent is creating seemingly impossible outcomes that address multiple and divergent agendas. So that's the one talent I got. Now I have a process for that and a why and all that stuff. But the reason I like CEOs is they have divergent agendas. Same game. You know, they were given 15 million Series A. When I get VCs with one agenda, your spouse has another. So they're saying, when, when, when does this go public? Yeah. Uh, your team has another, your customers have yet another, your stakeholders have another. There's six or eight equally valuable agendas that the CEO has to manage in one game. How do they play one game and win all of that? Because rarely does the board have the same agenda as the CEO, even though they have to play like they do. 90% of what they do is probably all aligned. 10% the CEO knows and the board doesn't know what the CEO does, but the CEO can't tell them that projection is way too high. There's no, no chance in hell we're going to hit that. They can't tell them that. They have to go along and then pretend like they're going to hit a, a gazillion when they got no chance of hitting a gazillion. Well, how do you manage all that? That's very tricky because they have no one to talk to. No one. They can't go to the board and say quietly and say, hey, can I take one of the board? You know, my favorite board came <laughs> out lunch and leak this. Nope. Yeah. Who's the one person or who's the one group that can fire the CEO? The board, yeah. yeah. You can't leak that. You can't talk to them about that. Well, you can't. You also can't go to your team and say, "I'm nervous about the third quarter sales." That's that's an epidemic now because now that, that the VP of sales says, "Boy, you gotta I'm get out of here." We might be doing budget cuts because he's nervous about the sales. It yeah. could be anything, and we might do budget cuts to a reduction in force or go under, and that gets made up because the CEO leaked accidentally, you know, over a beer that he's nervous about the third quarter sales. You can't say that. So that's why I work with CEOs because they've got multiple and divergent agendas they have to manage every day. And when I get them, most of them are running a playbook. And that's why it's so stressful and difficult. And where I help them is I get them to use their genius talent 
they're still managing the same divergent agendas, but now they're uniquely gifted because they're going to use that gift to play a, a little their, their own playbook. And what happens is the scaling uh, increases and we can track it. And that's, that's why it's, why it's really fun. So it's the game I play naturally and super well. They don't play seemingly impossible. That's my game, but they play whatever version of their genius talent they have. And they say, you know what? You know what I noticed? I sleep better. You know, yeah. Cause you're not track. You're not drink, bringing all those impossible things that don't add up to bed every night. Cause you, mm-hmm. now you, now you start taking care of them all. Oh, like it's, uh, they all, they all start losing weight, which is pretty funny. Let's say it's so weird. I've lost like 20 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. It's cause you stopped stress eating from losing or treading water on impossible games. So that's, uh, it's also why I do the charity work I do. My wife and I work in things that are the society sees as impossible. I'm much better there. I could go to a food bank and pack food boxes, but so could you can send junior high kids and do that. Yeah. It's not, and and it's a good place for junior high kids to start because it's risk free. Mm -hmm. Send me into the stuff that's super high risk and has no rules. I'll be much more effective there and, and maybe disruptive even, but much more effective. So I, you know, I read it all my charity work too. I don't do a ton of charity work, but my wife and I are big on doing, uh, we write checks, but we, we got and do hers and mine together. We know how they fit really well together too. So we know exactly why we're at, at where we're at. And, uh, and we enjoy working there too. We come back and we go, wow, that was a really amazing evening. And we were supposed to be serving and we come back completely filled up. Like, man, are we, uh, are we grateful to be alive for having done that? Cause you get that when you match it really well. Is, is that one of the requirements that you have for your clients when you're working with CEOs is making sure they do charity work on the side as well? No, no, we don't, I, I don't require anything. Um, I'm a biohacker. So a lot of them are interested. Most of them don't want to do the work or the homework. And it fascinates me. So I share stuff. They'll say, well, what, what do you got going on in, in what would you figure out this week or who'd you listen to? Well, I'm a, I'm a human, I kind of do my own human experiments. Uh, once a month I change one thing and all I check for is I can tell in my workouts. Uh, I can tell my sleep cause I have a, you know, I've got a biometrics ring and aura ring. Oh, yeah. So it's a sleep data and whatnot. So I can tell if my sleep is different, better or worse. And I can tell it in my workouts because all that stuff gets tracked in my workouts as well. But I can, you can generally feel, wow, that was a much better word. I had way more energy today. Do I have more energy or do I not? And I switch one thing. And I'll just say, oh, that's interesting. I stopped taking that supplement and started taking this one. Or I just stop. Sometimes I just stop one and say, does it even make a difference? So it's supplements, it's sleep, it's diet, it's all those things. You know, lifestyle, stress. But um, I share a lot with them. And most of them are interested in that without wanting to do the work. <laughs> and that's that's fine. I'll say if if you want a basic, just take these three things, and you'll feel way better. And they go, cool. Where do I get them? And I just send them the URLs, and and they just order them and, and use them. What are those three things for the audience listening? <laughs> uh, the first one and most important is N M N Nancy Mary Nancy. Hmm. It's the precursor to NDA, I think it's called. And your body, you can't take that naturally. So all you can do is trigger your body to produce it. So you take the, the trigger before it and it shows up, comes in a little package. I mean, it looks like a package of cocaine. It's just white powder. 
Uh, what happens is after 25, the age of 25, your body produces about 1% less every year. But that allows the cells to talk to each other. If you didn't have any of this in your, in your system, you'd be dead in 30 minutes. Well, if it, if it starts to deteriorate over time, but by 40, you know, you start losing energy naturally or whatever. Well, it's, it's easy enough to just take the precursor and lube the system, if you will, and immediately you'll start feeling better. And it's natural. There's nothing. It's, um, it's water soluble. You just put a little bit, um, in water in the morning. And I start, I start, so that's the first one. Um, quercetin, Q-U-E-R, quercetin is another one and resveratrol. They're both anti-aging, but you can, the listeners can read about them. Those three, if those are the only three things you took, you'll really feel a difference in your, in your energy, all natural, easy to buy online. You want to check qualities, uh, check which ones have good ratings on quality, but the NMM, NMN, I get from a place called do not age. That's the, that's the, the website, do not age.com. Yeah. They have the best quality. I mean, I take a gram a day. It just comes with a little, it looks like a little Coke spoon. It, it's got one gram. You just scoop it out and uh, you buy a hundred grams at a time. So it's, it's easy, but it's easy to take um, one, one of those. I think, I think quercetin you have to take with food and the other two, it doesn't matter. Maybe it's resveratrol. I don't remember which one, but one of them won't dissolve just with water. It just won't. So it just goes right through you. So, so take it with your breakfast. So, so that's all you did. Those three, your energy level will go way up you'll feel a lot better and you'll sleep better. And yeah, but I take insane amounts of crazy stuff and people say, how do you take, how do you even keep track of it? I know exactly what it does. And then, cause I'm interested in it. So, so a lot yeah. of them, yeah. yeah they're all sleep deprived. So, uh, Naturally. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and uh, I'd say, I'd say, you know, at first glance, you, know, you look 42. I mean, how, how, how old are you? If you don't mind sharing. My daughter is 41. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, that's my, my oldest daughter that lives in Dublin is 41. So, and my youngest son, he's adopted. My youngest son is 27. And there's, there's, you know, those are the bookends. Um, and then my two stepdaughters are 27 and 24. And so, uh, yeah. So there's, we go from 20, well, 24, 27, 27 again, because uh, two different families. Um, 31. 35 and 41. Yeah. Oh, oh sorry. Gosh. I forgot, uh, I forgot a 30 year old in there as well. So, uh, <laughs> Jeez. I forgot, uh, my, I forgot my son. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Come on, son. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's uh, that's very impressive. And, and so I love hearing all these stories of like working with the Russians to scaling companies, to discovering your genius. Oh, so you mentioned you have a three-hour program. Is this an online course that people take? Is this what you walk you through? Yeah. This is the trick. So imagine, like, let's, let's say, well, let's do the Russian mafia thing. I come, mm -hmm. Russian mafia, put the gun on the table and say, either tell me the one thing in life you do better than everyone else in the history of humanity, or I'll, I'll use the gun on you. Most people go, oh, I, I'm pretty good with creativity. And you go, who cares? <laughs> it's yeah. not specific enough. So most people, even though they want it, they have no clue what it is. And here's the theory I have. Genius talent, I think, because it, you use it every day. If you're so good at it that no one else does it like you, it sits like this. And you can't, you go, what do you mean? Creating seemingly impossible outcomes that address multiple and divergent agendas. 
all we do in three hours is put it here. And when you put it here, you go, oh, that? Yeah, that. And we give it language, but we give it very specific language. Um, and once people get specific language that's actionable, we also then, they, you tell me, I don't, I, there's no way I can make this stuff up because we're looking for one in eight billion. The stati- statistical odds of me guessing at that or you guessing at that are non-existent. Yeah. So the process is set up that we need you have a facilitator that teases it out of you. You don't re- even know you're telling me. And, it, and I'll feed it back to you and say, could it be this? You'll say, where'd you, where'd you get that from? They say, well, you told me that. And I go, I did? Yeah, like four times. Oh, and that's, that's unique? You go, no, it's not unique. It's unbelievably powerful. And then and I'll just ask them, once we have a proposal like that, you say, what's the, when you're doing, when you're creating seemingly impossible outcomes that address multiple and divergent agendas, what's the first thing you do? Well, once, once you have the placeholder, it's easy. And when I was asked that, my partners did it on me because I thought, they'll never figure it out. Because I don't, I didn't know it, and, and we developed a process that worked in a frame, and they did it on me. And then they said, "So they said, what's the first thing you do?" I said, "On like that." I had never heard the language, even though I'd kind of given it to them, and they helped with it. And they said, first thing I do is I design one game that takes care of everyone." Oh no, that turned into I design one unifying game because there's six or seven different agendas. Oh, one, but we all have to play one game, even if we all have a different outcome then I uh, enroll each participant in their version of a win. So your win can be different than someone else's. That's totally fine. I don't care how many players there are. And then I continually change the rules and the outcomes as we go. So I mend. This is what I do with the Russian Mafia. Every year I had to amend the game and say, there's only one rule that works for me, not for them, but for me, and that's no money. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, But I amend the rules and the outcomes so that everyone gets exactly what they came for. So what I would love to do to really pressure test it, because I've done some pretty amazing things with it now that I know what it is, I put myself in places that I know is impossible per society and one because I go, oh, I thrive in that and I can't not do that. That's the language you use. I'd love to go to the Middle East because a lot of that is uh, one of my conditions for winning is that Israel doesn't exist. Oh, well, that would be a hard one. Or that the Palestines move out of the West Bank. I don't know much about the Middle East. I just know it's been a yeah. fuss to collect forever, forever. Mm-hmm. And it never changes. And they create little truces and whatnot. And then I throw a rock at you and you throw two back at me and the whole thing's blown up again. Yeah. And that's never, that's never changed. And I thought, what if, what if you actually went there and this is my theory is that this is how every major problem in society will get fixed is not because you're a specialist in the Middle East, but because you have a genius talent where you see the world differently and you say, take homelessness. You may not not do much with homelessness. And and if you got forced into a situation, uh, I'll I'll give you the, this was a perfect example of a genius talent. I had lunch yesterday with one of my CEOs about the podcast. I've got a podcast coming up. And I said, one of the questions I want to ask people is if they weren't a CEO, where would they put their talents? And she said, here's what, you know what? I've got a different theory. I've got a different answer. And I said, Oh, great. She said, what if we took white collar criminals who have to outsmart law enforcement, con the public, the whole thing? She said they're brilliantly talented. And what do we do? We put them in jail for 10 years. What if we, their prison sentence was we give them 
an outcome that as soon as they're done finishing it, their prison sentence over. Hmm. And I said, what a brilliant idea, because now society benefits. So what if they had to cure homelessness in New York City? Because you did your, you know, you Bernie Madoff, you ripped off all these guys in New York City. You have to, while you're in prison, now you, you show up to a spot, but you have some freedoms and whatnot. But why would we lock them in a cell for 10 years and have them rot? It doesn't make it, nobody gets anything. And the society has to pay 75 grand a year to house them. And she said, what if we just did it that way? They're, they're incentivized to solve the problem. They're incredibly smart or they wouldn't have gotten away with the white collar crime. And I thought that is such an insanely simple and brilliant idea. And of course, who does it, who does it cost? Nobody. And if they can yeah. solve the problem in six months, they're free to go in six months. Yeah. And I thought, mm-hmm. Huh. That, but is that kind of stuff? That's how you'll solve problems is by giving them people that think different. I would have never thought of that. And she said, I said, God, there's no downside to that. Just none, except the people that lost billions say, we still should be able to punch him in the face or he didn't serve time long enough or whatnot because curing homelessness in, in New York city on my dime, because he stole billions from me. I don't feel like he got enough punishment. That'd be the only possible loser. Some of the victims might not like it, but why wouldn't you have society benefit? Super cool. And they do have, yeah. And we only know one story of that really of the catch me if you can guy, the Frank Abagnone, like, He's the only instance we know of that happening. I, I think like some hackers here and there get recruited by the FBI to work for the FBI, but it but is I think it's in lieu of a prison sentence. They say you can yeah. either come to work for us or you can go to jail and they go, cool, I'll come to work for you. Yeah. They're not really in, uh, and they, they get full freedom. They just have to come to work for the, but yeah, she's saying, no, let them live in their posh mansion and let them, they have to report like a job. And, and when they solve the problem, and give them big challenges. I thought, God, it's so simple uh, because they are clever. And guess what? They still have a network and resources. Yeah, they can still call on those people and say, "Well, I'm not, I'm not embezzling Bitcoin anymore. I'm not stealing Bitcoin. <laughs> what I'd like, what I'd like to do is solve homelessness in New York City. Would you help? Yeah, I tell. Cool. Yeah. Because why, why have them rot in jail? And I thought it's such, such a simple answer or such a simple uh, proposal. I thought, why haven't you told somebody about this? I mean, even post it online. <laughs> I bet you could do it because our prisons are overcrowded. You and I are paying for it. Why? Why would we pay? It's insanely expensive to house people. Why would we? In- yeah. And then those guys go to a minimum security because they're not a, they're not a physical danger to society. So that's what tennis courts and libraries and, and the internet, you know, why are we putting them in a country club? That doesn't make any sense either. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's, um, the, the process works really well that way for uncovering it, but I don't, it's always an invitation. I think all but one of my current clients has done theirs. And the other guy just, he's in a, he's in a dog fight right now. He's fighting for his life. So he'll do it, but he's in, um, if he had three hours, he doesn't feel like he's got three hours uninterrupted to do the process. And I said, yeah, uh, put the do- get get through with the dog fight. He'll be done in three months or so. He's I've been working with him about six months, and he came into a turnaround thing, and it was just a bigger mess than he thought. So he's he's just digging out. He'll, but he'll do it. He'll. Oh man, well, well that's uh, it's very inspiring. Yeah, the whole having to look at things differently. And uh, another thing too, when it comes to problem solving, I learned this in college. I had an advertising class. Uh, Dave Caranda was the teacher. He's one of the top advertising creative leaders of all time. 
And he, he wanted to stress the point of like giving yourself time to solve a problem as well, where right. like uh, he would give us one problem to solve and he'd give, then he'd give us 24 hours to solve it. And then the next day he's like, okay, I want you to solve the nuclear crisis in 10 minutes. Go. We're like, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was still a fun exercise. Like, I don't know if our ideas would have made sense or if they uh, would have worked, but it was still fun to like learn that how important it is for our, our brain to come up with deadlines to solve problems too. And of course, um, like Elon Musk says too, like he always sets impossible deadlines because uh, it always forces him to work faster. Even though right. he never reaches them, he still works them faster than if he would have. Right. Um, and so I love, I love that challenge of always finding impossible, um, challenges for people and just like how to think differently outside of the box. So that, that's super well, awesome. The other, the other reason I do it, I realized it wasn't my, it wasn't my motivation for doing it. Cause it was more, if you think of things like energy, I'd be bored stiff doing a 12 piece Lego set, but give me a million piece Lego set and no instructions. I'll be happy forever. Cause it's just too hard. No, it's yeah. not great with Legos, but you get the idea. So let's do this. Um, since you've got listeners and you've got people that we want to take care of, let's um, you figure out the methodology or the raffle methodology. Let's do it. We call it a genius discovery process. It's a three hour process. Uh, depending on who you are, we ch charge just under three grand. It's um, mostly we charge CEOs for this. Let's give away a genius talent discovery process to one of your listeners. You figure yes. out the what they have to do or the, uh, do they have to answer a question do they have to write something do they have to, but you can figure out the, the methodology and uh, and then just um you let me know who won and i'd be happy to do a genius talent discovery process and i'll i'll do it i have i have coaches that do it as well but i'll i'll do it as well so uh, no that's brilliant no i love that and uh i could definitely make a competition out of it and gamify it like you said yeah. and so yeah. well have it, uh, have it benefit, have it benefit your audience so whatever your competition is yeah have everybody win on this yeah of course all right that sounds awesome thank you for offering that john that, that's yeah my pleasure uh, I'm happy to amazing. do it. yeah perfect well awesome no i think that's a great way to wrap things up as uh, we're coming up top of the hour so um yeah so if you haven't heard um, we're gonna do a competition or uh, or some kind of promotion to be have the opportunity to get your genius discovered by john hitler himself one of the top genius evokers in the world and uh, someone who knows his genius. And so this has been super awesome. John, I know we talked about so many amazing topics today from uh, negotiations to hold, to scaling to geniuses. If people are listening to this interview, what is the one takeaway that you want them to have regarding all the wisdom that you, you shared today? It's not connected to anything else. Uh, start with a, start with a foundation of, actively expressing gratitude for what you have mm, for two that. reasons. One is it'll remind you how blessed you are, but you have to do it actively. You can't say, I'll think about it. You have to write it or speak it. My wife and I do it over dinner every night. We pray and we're thankful for what we're grateful for. But the other thing is you'll, you'll start to notice uh, all the things that you should start getting rid of. It, it has that net effect, even though that's not the exercise, but start with actively expressing gratitude and you'll clean up a whole lot of um, what I'll call suboptimal things in your life. Mm, I love it. I love it. Well, John Hitler, everyone. And what's the best way we can uh, contact you and get a hold of you if people want to learn more about you or connect sure. with you? Sure. I was fortunate enough to pick bad parents like everyone. Mine, <laughs> because yeah, three, three Irish grandparents, Sullivan, Lynch, and Hunter, and then one, the one that I, that uh, the booby prize. So if you, if you Google me on SEO, 
nobody is competing with me. So if you just Google John Hitler, there's 50 in a row. It's everything I've ever done, including my uh, disciplinary record in the principal's office in grade school. It's all in there because nobody else. So I don't have business cards. We say, how do I find you? Just, just put it on Google because no one ever forgets the name. That's, that's easy. So you'll, you'll see it all if, and you can find anything you want um, related to the company or TED Talks or books or all that kind of stuff. It's all, it's all under my last name. So it's an, it, who knew it would be an advantage at some point. So. <laughs> Funny how that works. <laughs> all right. Well, this is awesome. This has been amazing. Uh, thank you all for listening in and we'll see you all next week with the uh, rapid results and uh, make sure to check out John Hitler online and we'll see you all next week. Cheers. Thanks, Andrew. That concludes another episode of rapid results. Remember to leave a review about something you learned so others can share the knowledge. Keep being unstoppable in your pursuit of the lifestyle freedom you desire. And we'll see you next week.